Welcome back to another episode of Electric People. We have Leonard Armato on the show today. Leonard Armato is, he's a legend in the sports world. He is responsible for, I actually think he's responsible for a lot of the ways that um, athletes represent themselves today. I think he's responsible for a lot of the the personal branding and income opportunities and opportunities outside of just traditional sports that athletes have. So to explain, he actually started out, he wanted to be a trial lawyer, found that that didn't make him super happy. He has this kind of North Star vision of always wanting to help other people and add value to other people. So after he'd gotten his law degree, he'd gotten some advice to go into uh, representing athletes as a sports agent. So especially back then, you know, it was pretty much had to have a law degree to be um, to represent athletes. And so he he went out and, and set out to become a sports agent. He, he tells the story in here of how he acquired his first client, which was Ronnie Lott, pretty epic first client to get. Um, but a fascinating story on just hustle and being willing to do what it takes. I'll let him tell that story. Um, but later, he took on clients like Shaquille O'Neal and Hakeem Olajuwon and Oscar De La Hoya. And he saw an opportunity to not just capitalize on their athletic ability, but really their brand and their their kind of magnetism and their draw. And so, um, consulted and helped Shaq create the Dunkman brand, if you can think of that logo, uh, the Golden Boy brand for Oscar De La Hoya. He later created pretty much pro volleyball. Uh, he created the AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, which later turned volleyball into uh, you know an Olympic sport. He He's the current founder or he's the, the current president, CEO, and founder of Management Plus Enterprises, uh, where they essentially create IP for people. They help them create intellectual property and, and, and likeness that they can own and capitalize on. He was a CMO of Skechers. Uh, he basically took them to, from being a lifestyle company to being an athletic uh, company. And uh, the CEO of the AVB Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, it's kind of a mouthful, He's kind of done it all. He's featured in uh, ESPN 30 for 30s. He's in the HBO Shack documentary. He's a contributing writer for Forbes. Anyway, fascinating conversation about a guy that truly saw the industry that he was in differently and was able to really make his mark. So this is Leonard Armato. The street is where we create. We call it suburbanpreneurship. Mixing big company resources with an entrepreneurial spirit. This is Electric People. All right, Leonard, thanks for jumping on and joining us on Electric People Podcast. How's your day going so far? Oh, everything's good. You know, I'm I'm just grateful for so many of the blessings I have. So uh, every day I get up in the morning and I just start to think about that first. And then I roll into the priorities I have for the day. So uh, yeah, everything's going good today and glad to be joining you on this podcast. And we survived our first hurricane yesterday. So everything alive and well in, in Los Angeles? Well, I'm Can we call that a hurricane? I'm in Manhattan Beach, which is right along the coast, and for some reason we didn't really get it that bad. So it was oh, really? just like a you know a heavy rainstorm, but but nothing out of the ordinary for us. I guess inland, however, a lot of people got whacked pretty good. So um, you know where where I sit, it's it's fine. In fact, it's absolutely gorgeous today, uh, and you know so following the hurricane for us is just another beautiful summer day. Yeah, the uh, not to make light of it, but. I live in San Clemente, so I'm just, you know, a handful of miles south of you along the same uh, coastline. And I did have to get out of my car and kick some of the palm tree leaves like out of the way to make sure that like I could drive over the speed bump. So that was about the extent of 
of the damage repair that I contributed to. <laughs> right, of course. Um, so you have a very you've had a very dynamic and exciting career. I don't know if it feels that way to you, but it feels like that to me as I've researched and started to consume your content. It feels like I, when I was looking, uh, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts and read some of your articles. I wonder what you say that you do for a living. When people ask you what you do, what do you say? Well, we create, nurture, build, and grow IP. I mean, we create things and, and we visualize how they can become high growth properties. And then we put around those properties, you know, all the elements necessary to grow them into something valuable. So whether you're talking about Shaquille O'Neal and the Shaq brand or Oscar De La Hoya and the Golden Boy brand or the AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, which became an Olympic sport and is now a championship sport for women at college athletics, um, or whether it's even Skechers and how they can launch their performance division from a company that was once just a lifestyle company. So, you know, we're in the business of looking at the, at the future and creating a vision for it and then, you know, doing everything possible to make something grow. I love the, uh, I love speaking to people that are, that are principled and have gotten really clear on what they do. That's it. You can, you can just tell that you've, you've spent the time, you've done the work and you've thought through it. Um, when I went through your, your website, so the, the business that you founded and run is Management Plus Enterprises, right? And you create, right. you create brands, IPs, uh, as you call it. But I was drawn immediately to, to the fact that even on the loading page on your website, it, it's impossible to miss the values. You can just tell that you guys have very intentionally put your brand together. And it's funny because as the website's loading, a part of your what we believe in statement will show up. And I didn't know it was a loading page at first. I thought that was just the page. And so I started reading it and then it went away when the page loaded. But I liked what I was reading. And so I went to reload it and it gave me another one of your values. And I went through the whole cycle to read the thing I liked again. So I actually want to read your what we believe in statement. And then it's our, manifesto. It's our manifesto. Your manifesto. Mm -hmm. And then I'd love to hear maybe the story of how it came to be or your elaboration on these points. So bear with me for one second. But it says, what we believe in. Our chief aim is to improve the lives of others and enable greatness in everyone and everything we touch. We inspire each other by working with remarkable people on remarkable things and set a clear vision for what success looks like. We strive to operate with flawless dependability and exceed expectation in all we do. We are the best in the world at using innovation and disruptive new models to build personal and lifestyle brands, maximize potential, and impact the world in a positive way. We are intent on creating a culture that promotes courage, trust, empowerment, transparency, accountability, excellence, and inclusivity. We are a purpose-driven organization that looks to lead with compassion, not judgment, humility, not ego, and love, not fear. That's Strong. Our, that's our culture. That's our culture, and that's, that's the lens through which we operate, whether it's with each other at the company, or whether it's our clients, or it could be anybody that we encounter with, you know, throughout daily life. But, you know, that's just the way we look at things. And that's the way we use, um, you know, this manifesto to guide ourselves. Did the manifesto come first? Or is it something that's evolved over time as you've kind of figured out who you are as a brand and, and what your purpose is? It's evolved over time. Because um, everyone has to kind of figure out what your purpose is, what your culture is like, what you feel best when you are actually conducting business 
and also interacting with other people. And then when you accomplish something in business, you know, is it a, an accomplishment that was actually good for you and the other side? Or was it some accomplishment that really took advantage of someone else? And I sort of found out over time that you really want to do good as opposed to just doing really, really well. Because by doing good, you're actually creating something that you feel good about and others can believe it. It's interesting, the, the distinction between doing good and doing well, right? Like, you do well without doing good. Can you do good without doing well, right? Like, it's, that's a very interesting way to put it. Um, when you talk to me about the, the, the culture that you created, it's obviously a very intentional culture, right? We did an early interview with um, Jocko Willink, if you've ever consumed any of Jocko Willink's content, but he's, he's amazing. And he said something to me once where he said, you don't create culture, you steer it. You kind of like, you notice the elements that you have, you notice the values you have and what's important to you and you, and you steer it down a certain path. Um, talk to me about how you arrived at this culture. Did you always know what you wanted to create? Is it something that, you know, did you have, did you have the key people and then it unrolled or did you set out with a very clear distinction of what you wanted to create and, and, and carefully crafted it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think a culture is something that you learn to build over time by living and learning and being exposed to things, by having successes and failures and learning from those failures and seeing the way your conduct impacts other people. Um, if your conduct is, is hurting other people, then you're going to feel the effects of that in one way, shape, or form. If your conduct is actually improving the lives of others, as we have put in our manifesto, you'll feel the impact of that as well. So I started to realize over time that the most important thing for me was to do things that were improving the lives of others and maximizing people's potential, working with remarkable people so we had the, the canvas, the broad canvas to do things that were truly, truly remarkable and innovative. So as my career evolved, you started to think about how ego could get in the way of the kind of person you wanted to be, and you started to tone that down a little bit and really understand the importance of humility. Also understand the importance of improving others' lives because maybe someday they come back and do something either to help you or to show appreciation for what you've done for them. So there's a lot of learning that goes into building a culture. And the thing that's nice about building the kind of culture that I think we have, is you get people to follow you. You get people who want to be a part of it and embrace it. And you get people that feel like they want to be your first follower or your second follower or your third follower, and they're working on something that's actually bigger than themselves alone. And that makes people feel like they're part of a team in a way that really knits everybody together. Yeah, and the thing I like the most about it is it's very clear who you're looking for, right? And it's very clear who's going to be happy there and who would not be happy there. And I think that's one of the benefits of, a, of, a, of an established culture is, you know, you look, at, you look at sports teams that have had incredible culture. So you look at like Greg Popovich and like some of these, they know exactly what they want. And, and, and as a player going to play for those teams, you know exactly what they're all about. So if you're not about that culture, don't go there. And if you are about that culture, you can go there and enhance. It seems like strong cultures make everything stronger and unintentional cultures often 
they create their own culture, but it's not the culture that they would have wanted if they had started to craft it. Well, there's different cultures. I mean, there's cultures of fear and then there's cultures of love. I mean, so in, 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 in everywhere in between. So, you know, there's toxic cultures. I mean, you've heard of those. So, so I mean, the culture that we've developed, I believe, is the kind of culture that really does improve the lives of people working in our organization and also people outside our organization. And, you know, the power of relationships is so important and, and people really need to understand just what a critical role the power of relationships play in our life. I mean, I think there was a, a study that was done at Harvard that showed that relationships are the single most important factor in determining people's longevity. It's not nutrition, it's not exercise, it's actually relationships. And you know, we depend on relationships, not only the ones that are really close to us, but the ones that extend beyond just our immediate inner circle. And the way we treat people will be a defining factor in the way that these relationships play out. The, um, it's interesting to me the, 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 the evolution of your path. As I understand, you correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, you set out to be a trial lawyer originally, right? And it seems, I would love to hear your path, how, how that led to ultimately like meeting Ronnie Lott and, and becoming a, you know, representing athletes. But it's interesting to me that it seems from the outside that you've always had kind of this North Star of you want to help people and make their lives better. Um, yeah. So t- talk to me about starting in trial law and then the, the, the path your career has taken. Yeah. So when I was growing up, my father was a strong influence on me. He was a, a university professor. And he really enjoyed sharing knowledge with people, helping his students, and I saw him do that selflessly because university professors didn't really make a lot of money. And I thought, that's really great to help people, but at the same time, I want to make a good living doing it. And so I decided to go to law school because I thought that would give me a wide range of choices. And I played basketball when I was in college, um, and I enjoyed a good relationship with my college basketball coach. And when I went to law school and graduated, I became a trial lawyer. But I was relatively unhappy. I didn't feel my life had as much of a purpose as I wanted. I was in the law library a lot writing, you know, what they call memorandums that you would then um, register in court. And I just didn't feel good about what I was doing. And I called my coach and I told him that. And he said, well, you should represent athletes because athletes are being taken advantage of and they could really use somebody like you who understands them and could help them. But I said, I don't have a client. How can I do that? He said, well, try and go out and get a job with a, you know, sports agent. And so I tried and nobody would hire me. And then I talked to him again and he said, well, look, you just go, need to go out and get your own first client. And so I, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the term fly without a safety net. So I quit my job as a trial lawyer and I said, look, I'm going to go all in on trying to be a sports lawyer. So my coach set me up with um, a meeting with a guy who played both basketball and football at USC. His name is Ronnie Lott, one of the greatest defensive backs in the history of the NFL, You know, one of the all-time great players, Hall of Famer. At the time, he was coming out of USC as a very, very, very top recruit, and all the sports agents wanted to represent him. So I got a meeting with him, not because of my qualifications, but because of his relationship with my coach, who was a coach that we both shared, you know, in basketball. 
So I got to this meeting and he looked at me and he said, well, I really don't know why I'm having this meeting with you. You have no experience, um, but I'm doing it as a favor to our coach. And I said, okay, but I, you know, I don't, I don't understand what your criteria is for selecting an agent. He said, well, look, I have the biggest agents in the world trying to represent me. And um, I'm at, I just need to know from you what your experience is and what reason you have for um, me even considering you. He said, do you have any clients? I said, no. He said, do you have any experience as a sports lawyer? I said, no. And he said, do you have any big firm that's backing you so I can feel confident that you could represent me well? And I said, no. And I said, well, look, I know you don't want to continue this meeting, but maybe I could just ask you a couple of questions um, to see exactly where you want to go with your career. He goes, okay, fine. Make it quick. I said, okay. Number one, what do you want to accomplish as an NFL player? And he said to me, well, I want to be the best. I want to be an all pro. And I would love to be in the Hall of Fame someday. I said, okay, that's great. How do you want to be um, treated off the field? And he said, well, you know, I want to own car dealerships and be a successful businessman. I said, wow, okay, that's a great goal. And I said, finally, how do you want to be remembered? And he said, well, I want to be remembered as somebody that really gave back to the community. I want to help young kids that are underprivileged. I said, whoa, those are three extraordinary goals that take quite a bit of focus and energy to accomplish. And I said, if you went with one of these agents that you're talking about, these fancy agents that have 40, 50, 60 clients each, they'd probably only be able to give you four, five, six, maybe seven minutes of their time a day in the way of attention if they treated you equally with their other clients. So you won't be getting much time, effort, or energy. With me, however, you're going to get 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I will be there for you always, every single step of the way, and I'll help you accomplish all of those extraordinary goals you've set for yourself. So I said, well, you know, I don't have any confidence that you know what you're doing. And I said, well, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll work for you for 30 days for free. And I will prove to you that I am the best for you. And if after 30 days, you do not believe me, you do not feel that, I'll shake hands with you, I'll walk away, you will owe me absolutely nothing. And it kind of sort of like stopped him in his tracks. And he was yeah. I could see him thinking about this. And he goes, hmm, well, why don't you ask my parents if they think that's a good idea? And I knew I had an opening. Okay. So I said, okay, let me go meet with them. And so I jumped in my car. They lived about an hour outside of Los Angeles. I raced to their home. I sat in front of them and I said, Mr. and Mrs. Lott, I'm going to work for your son for 30 days for free to prove to you and to them and to, to you and to him that I would be the absolute best agent for him. And they said, wow, that's pretty nice that you're willing to work for free. What a nice young man. And so I called Ronnie. I said, hey, they said, let's go. So they said, yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the rest is history, but that's how it all started. That's amazing. I, uh, you know, I think of probably how different that experience was for him, right? Because for you, it's, it's your first experience with it, right? You're just trying to make it happen. But I think there's probably a marked difference between you sitting in there and asking him, you know, what's your vision? What do you want? What do you see long term? I mean, I'm imagining that every other agent that sat in front of him just talked about what they could do for him. But even being able to extract those three things, right? You want to be in the Hall of Fame, right? You want to give back to the community. You want to be a businessman. Okay. Well, once, he, once they give you that, I mean, that's kind of sales 101, where it's like, I can help you get anything in the world. What's that quote? I can help you get anything in the world. You just have to be able to clearly tell me, right? Well, I think that it all boils down to one thing that everyone in sales needs to realize. And that is, what is your value proposition? 
you know, what is it that makes you special and unique and how you will set yourself apart from the competition or anyone else. So at that point in time, my value proposition was time, effort, energy, desire, commitment. You know, I had to, I had to lean into all that because that's all I had. That's all I had. Now, later on, that changed in my career. My value proposition changed. But at the time, that was really all I had to sell. And, you know, that's something that everybody out there needs to just realize, you know, at any given point in time, if they're trying to sell themselves, what is it that makes you special and unique? And how does that match up with whatever it is the other side really needs in their life? So I leaned into that and ended up working. But at the same time, you know, that's something that I've never forgotten. Well, and I also think maybe something that a little less obvious that you have this guiding like Northern star of wanting to help people. What an advantage that was to Ronnie that he probably didn't even know because I'll bet you all the other agents that sat in front of him, I bet you they didn't have a clear life mission. Maybe they did, right? But maybe not as articulate as yours where it's like, hey, I really want to help you versus I'm trying to be the best agent in the world or I'm trying to earn a certain amount of money. I mean, I think a lot of times when you have that clear purpose, it shines through and you end up getting deals or jobs that on paper don't make a lot of sense. But you get out a few years and you wouldn't have it any other way. You know, how, how long did you work with Ronnie? Oh, through his whole career. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was 17 years or 16 years. It was a while. It was a long time. Yeah. And I mean, I was there when, you know, when uh, they dedicated uh, his high school stadium to him. I gave the speech. I, wow. you know, I went to, actually, I went to Napa Valley with him probably six months ago. So we've maintained a relationship. I mean, he's, uh, he's so respected and, you know, such an incredible person. So. I'm really fortunate. And always, every time I get a chance, I just thank him. I go, if it wasn't for you believing in me, <laughs> I don't know what I'd be doing right now. <laughs> well, it's honestly, it's it's awesome. We actually know Ronnie. We've we've done some golf tournaments and stuff with him, and he is all energy all the time. Like he's he's done some intros to our video show and stuff like that. So he's he kind of is a he's kind of a member of the league by induction. But um, it also strikes me as funny that his parents were like, oh, what a nice young man. You're willing to work for free. And it's like, yeah. would you do that over again? 5,000 times in a row, right? Like 30 uh, days for a whole career with Ronnie. That well, one amazing well, thing. You know, it's funny, but it wasn't really 30 days. I didn't tell you, but it actually took 90 days. And I was pretty worried. You know, wow. after about 60, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have any money. Wow. I don't know what's going to happen. Have you ever heard of fly without a safety net? I was flying without a safety net and I didn't want negative thoughts to come into my mind. but you know, I didn't really have any financial wherewithal at that point. And if he wouldn't have gone with me, if he would have fired me, I don't know what I would have done. So anyway, you know, you just have to, you know, feel blessed that, that things happen the way they did. And, you know, the rest is sort of history with him. It's funny, though, because you almost think that that's the end of the story. It's like, okay, I got that. I got the contract and I've worked with him for his whole life. But really, it's kind of the beginning, like locking the contract. That's the beginning. Then you have to go to work. Then you got to figure out how to be an agent. Then you got to get the, then you got to add the value, right? Like, um, so how does it go from that to working? I mean, I know you've worked with Shaquille O'Neal. You've worked with Hakeem Olajuwon. You worked with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How does it go from there to, to picking up more athletes and adding value to them? Yeah. So it's part of the career evolution. And, and, you know, you asked me what I do and I would say we create and build IP, but I, you know, I really started out being a sports agent who was just trying to help athletes negotiate their contracts and maybe learn a little bit about business so that they could have a successful career off the field. And then I got a relatively large stable of athletes and 
Then I started moving into basketball and I started helping Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the end of his career when he'd lost all of his money, his house had burned down, he was really in a difficult spot. And I kind of worked with him and spent a lot of time on one guy who was kind of iconic and started to think more and more as I represented NBA players who were marketed much differently than football players. They had a much wider uh, appeal in terms of marketing and started realizing this could be an area that's very interesting. I got to know David Stern very well, who is the uh, commissioner of the NBA, became close with him and watched how he created all of these partnerships for the NBA that helped the NBA grow and build. And, I, and he would tell me, you know, it's important for us to get money from every one of these companies, but the most important thing that we can get them to do is use the NBA in creative marketing. And that will make us more relevant in culture, and that will make our league more popular. And if you remember the series of advertisements that went on a long time ago, you're probably too young for this, but Nike started um, advertising Michael Jordan. And they did these incredible ads with Spike Lee. And everybody just started looking at the NBA as this really aspirational league. And so I used that same sort of theory and applied that to Shaquille O'Neal. When he came into the league, I saw the opportunity to take this guy and turn him into a cultural icon by using a variety of different uh, methods, including music, including movies, including big marketing campaigns, to turn him into a true brand that had institutional value. And it was David Stern that inspired me to do that. And from there, I went from a sports agent to really a sports marketer and a brand builder. And I went from representing a lot of clients to representing only a few clients I could spend a lot of time strategizing around and ensuring that we could put the elements in place to build powerful brands. Well, it's so valuable. I, I happened to just finish the other day on a run. I finished um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's book, uh, Coach oh. Wooden and Me. I'm yeah. fascinated with that relationship between Kareem and, and Coach Wooden. It's such like a beautiful, it's, it's like a beautiful journey, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny part of it is I knew John Wooden. In fact, we did a, a television commercial that included Shaq, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and John Wooden. My and goodness. That was amazing. And I have, a ball yeah. signed by, I have a ball signed by all of them, which is really cool. But, but what I was going to tell you about this is that um, Coach Wooden is the most revered coach of all time. And all of his past players love him, revere him, always talked about him. But while they were playing with for him, a lot of them didn't like him yeah. because he was tough. And they will have their own independent so-called values as college students. Like Bill Walton didn't want to cut his hair. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar didn't want to. He was, Bill, he was uh, Lou Alcindor at the time. Didn't want to do yeah. a lot of things that, that yeah. John Wooden wanted him to do. But, but post-playing for him, they realized that all the things he was saying were beautiful, accurate and designed to make them the best person they could possibly be. Yeah, it's back to kind of starting with vision, right? His vision wasn't to win games. It was to help people develop into better humans, right? And, and yeah. it, it's, it's crazy because of the amount of people years and years and years after playing for him that still revere him as like one of the most important like develop people in their lives, period. You know? But what I was going to say about Kareem that's interesting is your influence and the work that you do 
now it's really common that people would be brands because we have social media and we have like these, these, you know, events are so easy to come by. But I, I think it's important to stress that, you know, before your business started doing this for people weren't really brands, right? Like individuals weren't really brands. And so had, had you not worked with Kareem in this way and this evolution not happened, we would probably see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar very differently, right? I mean, you know, he, he refused to go uh, to the Olympics. He, he had very different beliefs at the time. He, he, you mentioned his house burning down and some of his associations and things like that. Like, but I believe now as, you know, I, I was born in the 80s, so I kind of came up through that. And I remember the Spike Lee commercials and things. That evolution really, I think, changed the way that history see, sees your players. Yeah, I think that, you know, with Shaq, we sort of transformed the way that athletes were marketed so that they could actually own their own brand and build it and grow it. And it's really interesting you point out how social media has changed the game quite a bit. And so I think the evolution of athletes has gone, gone even further and maybe we started it. But now, not only can you be a brand, but now athletes are basically media companies. You know, yeah. which is really interesting. And so you could be a brand and a media company with direct access to all these people, you know, right at your fingertips. And there's a lot of influence that, that you can assert based on that kind of power. You're seeing more and more athlete power exist. You see it in the sports leagues. You see it everywhere. So it's really been, you know, and I'm proud of being part of the evolution of the power of the athlete. And it's definitely come to roost today. I mean, look at the latest development, Messi. Messi comes over from, from Europe to the U.S. He's like driving media sales. He's driving not only merchandising sales, he's driving attendance, he's driving sponsorship. I mean, the power of the, of the iconic athlete has never been greater. Yeah, Messi, he is a whole economy in and of himself, isn't yeah. he? Just... And I think it's incredible. I, I love it. We, uh, I want to, I want to hear about the the evolution, the creation and evolution of the Shaq brand. Um, funny story, like Shaq's the kind of guy that you just see him everywhere. He always looks like he's having fun, you know. So I remember when he first got into the league, and he was like the biggest guy ever. That was really disruptive. But then I remember the creation of like the affordable shoes because you know, growing up pretty like straight middle class, we didn't have a lot of money for like the the extra fancy shit. I remember the creation of his shoes, but then just last year we were at a Formula One event. The, the event ends and Shaquille O'Neal takes the DJ stage and is DJing this party for hundreds of thousands of people. I'm like, what, what does this guy not do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a pretty incredible guy. I mean, so I remember when I first met him, uh, I was down in uh, San Antonio. Actually, I, I met him for a moment when he was at LSU, his, his coach at the time, Dale Brown, brought him up into the office and had me shake his hand. But when I truly met him was at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. And his father uh, was stationed there because Shaq's uh, parents were in the military. And uh, I remember he had uh, a brother and a sister and they this little room in, in, the, in the barracks, one of the bedrooms that all three of them shared. Shaq could barely fit into a little single bed and he just kind of kind of uh, folded himself into this little single bed. And we sort of talked a little bit about, you know, what he was interested in doing in the future. And he was, yes, sir, no, sir, very shy, very, very, wow. very respectful. And he talked about really enjoying music. And he talked about entertainment. And he talked about the things that, you know, were on his mind. And I just figured out how to actualize those into a plan. 
And when he first came out, we had um, a huge national campaign with Pepsi, a huge national campaign with Reebok at the time, which was rivaling Nike for being the number one company. And then we had a record deal and he was rapping and the NBA was pushing him. And he came out with a movie, Blue Chips, which, uh, you know, which became a big movie at the box office. And all of a sudden he was everywhere. And then he started breaking backboards accidentally, but not accidentally. And the NBA had to change the stanchions and the way that they put up the baskets. And this was this guy who was like larger than life, you know, this powerful force. But we also then leaned into the softer side of Shaq, the more vulnerable side of Shaq, the side of Shaq that was, you know, emotionally intelligent, which people were like, oh, my gosh, this is such a great combination. And it worked. So that brand positioning grew and grew and grew and grew over time. It's interesting. So you, you didn't necessarily say, did, did, did you start as his agent and then start this new company that would help people develop brands? Or did that kind of organically evolve as you, as you knew Shaq and knew what his interests were? I mean, I started with him as his agent, his manager, his brand builder. I mean, I, we yeah. did everything in our company for him. Yeah. So, so you just that, identified the need as you worked with him and you're like, wow, these guys yeah. can do more things. Cause I remember the logo, like the logo so iconic, like maybe talk about that. Like how, how, how you take someone like that and position it. Well, it was really interesting because at the time I studied obviously the NBA and David Cern, what he was doing, I was studying Michael Jordan and what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed was Michael Jordan was the ultimate pitch man. But he didn't own any of his intellectual property, and he didn't own his brand. Nike did. So yeah. I said to Shaq, like, we should own our own. You know, you should own your brand and 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 license it to people and keep control of it. And uh, he's, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And 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 so um, I actually went to one of the legends of the advertising business. Uh, his name is Lee Clow, who is an advertising legend. He was. Steve Jobs is um, advertising chief. Actually, he he was the chairman of Shiat Day, which is one of the largest uh, advertising agencies in the world that did Apple's work. And Lee worked with Steve Jobs directly. He also worked on you know all kinds of different campaigns, whether it's Energizer Bunny or or uh, you know Kiro Taco Bell and the Taco Bell you know dog, or, and he had yeah. all kinds of different things that he did. And he was at the time the um, point person on Re the Reebok account because Reebok and Nike were vying for each other um, and going at it. And so I said to him, look, for, the, for um, Reebok, here's what I'm suggesting. You design a beautiful logo for Shaq that really, really embodies what he's known for, which was the dunk. And Lee said, that sounds like a great idea. I will do it. And I said, but we have to own it and we'll license it back to your client Reebok. And he said, okay, no problem. So he designed the beautiful Dunkman logo and he, he, he gave us ownership in it. And then we licensed it back to his client Reebok. And then we licensed it to Pepsi. And then we licensed it to everybody. And that became the logo that Shaq owned that ultimately ended up on low cost shoes. So it's, it was a fun journey. And, and he ultimately sold that, by the way, to Authentic Brands Group, which is a big multi-billion dollar brand uh, uh, house. And he's very happy that we own that logo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's interesting. You have this ability to look at what's happening and, and almost go a level up 
and see what it actually is. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I told you that we run these sales teams. So these sales teams are kind of like they're kind of like sports teams. Honestly, they they have their own brand, they have their own value system, they have their own look, they have their own set of values and cultures and all these things. Um, but it didn't used to always be that way. It used to be just a team, and their brand name was like almost like probably early sports was where their brand name was just the city. They're like, okay, you guys are Los Angeles, 2010. But we noticed that the same group of individuals was coming together every year and they were going to different cities. And we're like, we're not Los Angeles and Kansas City and Boston. We are whatever, you know, whatever brand name you come up with. We are uncommon or whatever. And then they would brand it over that. And so it became a thing where we would create these symbols and the symbols start to mean things for people. And we end up having a lot of longevity versus just traveling to a market to sell. We're actually, we're a team. Right with our own with our own brand and our own image, and I think that things like that, people that can see like the essence and the movement of what's happening, there's a lot of unlocks there. There's a lot of unlocks. What happens? What happens? What do you see developmentally when um, athletes become aware of what their potential is? Like you take someone like Shaq, who used to just be good at basketball. You help him understand that hey, you are a business. You're not just an athlete. What, what developments do you see happen and how, how does their life and, and, and enlightenment change? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, that athletes start to look at things outside of their sport that they're particularly interested in, and then they just really need good guidance around how to become successful. The advantage they have is they're magnets for, for, for people. And if they have good guidance, you know, Magic Johnson's a great example. Um, you know, he's a magnet for people and people love him because of his beautiful smile and his charming personality. And he's, he's been able to walk his way into a whole bunch of great business opportunities, starting with, with Howard Schultz and Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So, and with Shaq, he's so lovable. I mean, he's, he's the, you know, the giant that everyone gravitates towards and he's great with people. So he has a lot of great business opportunities coming his way. And it's just a matter of him you know, picking and choosing which ones he wants to get involved in. And hopefully he picks good ones as opposed to bad ones. And he has. So, you know, I think this is, you know, just the, the, the I mean, look, LeBron James has got himself into a bunch of great opportunities because he's, you know, had good advisors around him and, and it's worked. So I think, you know, if you can use your ability to, to attract, you know, people into your life the right way as an iconic athlete, you can just do incredible things. Yeah, it's really cool to see, you know, they're not just disposable heroes as much, right? It's not like, hey, you're, you're good for three years while your knees hold up and then, you know, we'll look at highlight clips. They really, it seems now that they have, athletes have more opportunities than they used to. And for the benefit of everybody, right? Like it, it's good for the franchise. It's good for the city. It's good for the development of, of you know, all the organizations and the, and the, the, you know, the charitable contributions that they make. It seems that as they develop and enhance, everything around them does as well. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. And, and, and you have to look at, you know, their core values. If you look at Shaq's core values, he loves to give back to people. Um, he treats people with dignity and respect. Everyone loves him. So, you know, you got to take your hat off to him because he's a great ambassador. He's a great role model. And he influences people in, in, in a really, really great way. And he's got great judgment when it comes to what to say and what not to say. What are some what are some difficult lessons that you've learned? I mean, to hear that you know you kind of like created this idea of of, of turning athletes into brands. 
I bet that was hard to articulate in the early days when people hadn't seen it before, when it hadn't really been done before, when, you know, they were, they were, I would imagine people that were pretty nervous about putting the athletes in charge of everything because who knows what they might do and they're young. And talk to me maybe about some challenges or things that you had to overcome in your path to, to, to create businesses and to create IP. Well, I think what, what happens is until people see something in front of them in real life, it's hard for them to visualize things. So, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, in areas that involve, you know, creating from nothing or creating from scratch. And, and oftentimes when you're creating from scratch, it's hard to get people to believe. Um, you know, in the, in, the, in the Catholic faith, there's, a, there's an expression, doubting Thomas. There's a, doubting Thomas is someone, because what happened was, was um, after Jesus came back from the dead, all the apostles believed, you know, without seeing him, but Thomas had to see that he was in fact there before he would believe. So you have to show people things before they believe oftentimes. So whether it's starting the sport of professional beach volleyball, which I did, you know, AVP, Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, you know, who knew that volleyball would be an Olympic sport and, and a championship sport for women, which it is. And, you know, we put men and women under one umbrella, gave them equal prize money. We gave equal prize money to women 20 years ago before it was even... Yeah, I was going to say, what year did this start? I've, I've only known Pro Beach Volleyball to be a thing. I don't remember a time when it wasn't. So... Yeah, I mean, we, we put men and women together in 2002, 2001, and gave them equal prize money. And Misty May, Carrie Walsh, if you remember those names, you know, went on to win three straight gold medals at the Olympic Games. Now, um, volleyball is a championship sport for women at the, at the collegiate level. But yeah. who knew beach volleyball could actually be a, a sport that people recognized? And, you know, it, it is at the Olympic Games the most popular sport to go to because it's fun and it's sexy and all those things associated with it. So, you know, it's hard if you don't have something to show someone because they need to be able to visualize what you're trying to create. So that's really the biggest challenge in doing something that hasn't been done before. You have to find people that are willing to believe in your vision. How did that opportunity come about? Which one? Pro Beach Volleyball. Um, because I had a lot of friends. I, I, when I was playing basketball uh, in college, I'd play beach volleyball um, in the summer as cross-training. And there were a lot, a lot of amateur tournaments, and some people just love the sport. And there's some really great athletes that played the sport. And over time, they started to build a little bit of an amateur tour, and then they started giving them little prizes like beer money and you know, a little bit of prize money. And the athletes- Mostly just hobby stuff. Sorry? It's mostly just hobby stuff back then. Yeah, it was kind of a hobby. And then there was a little bit of money sprinkled in. And, and the players who I knew just from my past life came to me and said, hey, you know, you're a successful sports lawyer agent. Can you help us? And so I said, look, I, representing any one of you individually doesn't make sense because there's really no money in it. But maybe we can all join forces together, create an association, and then maybe collectively I can figure out a way to build value for you. And we ended up creating this, this tour that, that was sponsored by a major um, company called Miller Lite. You've heard of Miller Lite. So it became the Miller Lite Tour. This was way back in the mid-80s when I first started as a sports lawyer. And the Miller Lite Tour grew, and it was just a men's-only tour at the time. Um, but it became all of a sudden 
popular with corporate America. We got it on NBC. We got it on ESPN. And the thing just started to blow up and grow. And then ultimately became an Olympic sport. Um, I stepped away from the sport uh, for a number of years just to focus on Shaq and Oscar De La Hoya, the golden boy. And by the way, you know, we haven't talked about this and, and I don't know how much time we have, but when we represented Oscar as a, um, as a boxer, um, we really came up with the idea that a boxer doesn't need to be promoted by some third party, but could in fact promote their own fights. Interesting. And then we cut out sort of the middlemen, which were like Bob Arum and Don King and all that. And yeah. we created Golden Boy promotions for Oscar, which then became the first boxer and boxing promotion company to promote their own fights, which was cool. But anyway, back to the volleyball. It was a really, really interesting journey um, because I left and then they had some problems. And then when I came back in and bought it in 2001, 2002, we ended up putting women underneath that umbrella with men. And like I said, gave women equal prize money, equal TV time, and it started to grow again. And, and ultimately, that's when Kerry Walsh and Misty May won their three straight gold medals at the Olympic Games. Wow. It's crazy to see where the roots of those things are, you yeah. know, like, and, and how fast something that, that is, is well thought through can take off and, you know, people can sure. find value in it. What do you think about what, uh, what like Jake and Logan Paul are doing with, with boxing and promoting as, as somebody that's had a whole career in, in branding and, and making things a thing? Well, I don't like it, but at the same time, you know, I respect what they're doing. I mean, you know, it's sort of, um, it's become, you know, a sport. Um, it's become a sport of its own. It's like influencer yeah. games. You know, it's like the influencer yeah. game. So, you know, if there's an influencer and you're interested in them, well, maybe you might want to see them compete, you know, in a, in, in a, in a field that's maybe uh, interesting to you. I mean, look. The biggest pay-per-view match of all time, and I'm I'm very confident in saying this, would be Zuckerberg versus Elon Musk. <laughs> I mean, if those yeah. guys went at it, those are two of the biggest influencers in the world, right? So if they right. went at it in the cage, you know it would be the biggest pay-per-view event of all time. So it's a really interesting dynamic now with the with the advent of the influencer. And it kind of ties in with the athlete as a media company too. So all of that is like part of what's happening in today's world. When you say you don't like it, do you not like it because you feel the quality of sport isn't as high, the quality of marketing isn't as high, or it's just its own thing? I'm it's curious. It's a form of entertainment I don't really appreciate. You know, that's I all. It. I mean, <clears throat> look, if you're going to play a sport, I love to watch the best compete against each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, I think, is really exciting. Yeah. If you want to be entertained by a comedian, okay, there's a comedian and you go watch the comedian. If you like that style of comedy, you respond to it. I just don't, I mean, again, I respect it because it's successful, but at the same time, it's not my cup of tea to watch influencers fight. That's all. Yeah, but we still watch them. But yeah. <laughs> well, you do. <laughs> <laughs> you do. And I don't, I'm not, and by the way, I'm not criticizing you for watching them. I'm just telling you for me, it's not my, you know, it's not something that I value or something that I enjoy. But if people sure. want to watch Jake Paul fight a mediocre fighter or whatever and box them and beat them, it's all good. Yeah, I more mean, I more mean that there's, there's, a, there's a creative marketing mind in him. And I actually don't 100% know where I sit on, on Jake Paul personally. I, I just watched his documentary the other day while I was on a flight. And I thought it was very interesting that this person was able to create something. 
right? Yeah. Good, good yeah. or bad, he created something and people care. And that's a lot more than I've ever done. And there's a lot of people that don't like him, but it's interesting. At least, it, you know, he's making something. It might not be for everybody, but he's making something. And, you and know? that's why I started this by saying, I don't like it per se. I don't, I don't yeah. enjoy it, but I respect what he's done. And, and, you know, I'm not criticizing him for being creative and certainly it's a success. So God bless him. It's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> but if Elon fights Zuckerberg, can we watch it together? Can, can we do that? If Elon fights Zuckerberg, I mean, I might have to watch that one because it's just so ridiculously out of the box crazy. But, what if, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have what if 10 years from now, that's how presidential elections are done. Right? It's just like, uh, get in there and slug it out. It's honestly better than these debates. I'm just kidding. Um, the, the interesting thing about, you know, when, 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 when a movement kind of takes off, so this, you know, you look at the advancements in athlete marketing and marketing in general, right? It used to be like a big corporation would market stuff. Now it's kind of like a podcast or making music. People can pretty much do that. Right. And I think, um, I wonder how you feel, but you, you have early like founders roots in creating that movement, which I think is really good. But now I see things like, um, look at like surfers. Okay. So there's not a lot of opportunity if you're not one of the you know top five, 10 surfers in the world. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of a hard living to make. I mean, it looks nice, but really you're traveling around the world and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're managing your own um, physicality and there's not a lot of money in it. But now they can market themselves, right? They can, they can, they can, start YouTube channels and they can get subscribers. They can start social media. They can form partnerships and they can create their own merch and sell it. And I think that I do think the, the general understanding or IP behind helping people understand there's more to them than simply being an athlete. I think that's really virtuous and good. And how do you feel as you look at that? I mean, do you take any, I mean, I I know you don't want to pat yourself on the back for it, but that's largely due to your work. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say that what's happened today is measurably different than what I was doing with Shaq. Now, Shaq embraced it, and he is an influencer of massive proportion. And when you're an influencer of massive proportion, and then you can do things like sell product. I mean, I'll give you the, probably the best example of that. And um, I remember when I was, uh, we didn't talk about this, but I was CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of Skechers, you know, mm-hmm. and I launched and was president of their performance division. Well, one day, one of my interns walked into my office and, and said, hey, you know, we're, desi- we're, we're trying to sell these, you know, these exercise shoes. And I have a really great idea about somebody who we can sign. And I'm like, who? And he, she told me who it was. It was like a, a new influencer that was, you know, has social media following right when social media was just starting to grow. And I'm like, okay. So I went to the founder of the company. Oh, what about this person? And finally talked him into signing this person. And then she had a social media following because I was thinking social media plus traditional media com- combining those could be really interesting. Yeah. So we ended up using this this uh, influencer in our Super Bowl ad. And next thing you know, she had 15 million you know, uh, Twitter followers, then she had 40 million Twitter followers. And then Instagram was exploding. And she had all these Instagram followers. And her name is Kim Kardashian. So she's got the biggest social following in the world. The reason I bring this up to you is that she and her sisters have been able to sell direct to consumer to all their fans, all their product, and they're both billionaires. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kim has skims, her sister has Kylie Cosmetics. I mean, it's unbelievable what a true influencer can do if they find the right way to activate their fan base. What year was that? 12. Crazy that that was only 11 years years ago. ago. It was 10 years ago. Yeah. And that, that, that name, I, I happen to know that story, but that name, like, it's crazy that that's only been 10 years that you're like, Hey, let's take a chance on Kim Kardashian. Now, if Kim Kardashian will post for your company and you can get that done, it's like universally, you just do it. Right. But it's crazy that you had to take a chance on it all those years ago. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Who are, who would you cite as some of your mentors and like the key, like early lessons that you learned from them? What, what's at your foundation of people that helped you develop your ethos? Well, the people that helped me was my coach, Stan Morrison, who was my basketball coach. And he had a saying that I will never forget. Anytime he recruited someone at the schools that he was at, he would say to the recruit, if you give me two hours a day for the next four years, I'll give you 24 hours a day for the rest of your life. So he basically said, if you're part of our, my family, basketball family now, you're my family for good. And he'd have people over for, for holidays. And, you know, he's just incredible. You know, a player of his would, you know, would need a job. He'd make 25 phone calls. I mean, he was just that way. So he, and he also introduced me to Ronnie Lott and the coach of LSU, Dale Brown, who eventually led me to Shaquille O'Neal. So I owe a lot to Stan Morrison. Another person I would mention is David Stern. I already talked about David but I watched David, and I remember the first day I met him, I had a meeting with him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at um, Olympic Towers, which is the NBA office on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And I sat in the office, and I got there early because I didn't want to be late, but I figured he would you know, be late for my meeting, keep me waiting, because he's David Stern, the most, he was the most powerful guy in sports at the time. And I remember at 2 o'clock on the dot, I expected... You know, I thought the door would open and a secretary would get me, but no, it was David Stern. He came out to the lobby. He greeted me by name, said, hello, Leonard, how are you? So nice to meet you. He walked me into his office himself. And I was like, wow, you know, I was really impressed. But what I was really impressed by was that he knew everyone at the NBA's job better than they did. And he was a an absolute like micromanager. And I'm not saying it's good to be a micromanager, but he was just so brilliant. He was able to absorb so much information. It was incredible. So I just learned from him, learned about marketing, learned about dealing with people, you know, learned about the, the importance of attention to detail. So I would say David Stern is a, is a mentor of mine. It's really cool. It's really cool to see the, uh, you know, the, the, the effects of a lot of the influences plus your work and, and, and opportunities all these years later, and then be able to trace it back to the roots. And, and, you know, there's a lot of like kind of at the core of your story, I always see this kind of idea to help people and make things better, right? And I look at, you know, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, you ask that question to somebody now and you probably have a whole lot of people that say, well, it was Leonard Armato that, that, that took an interest in me and showed me that, that I could do more and be intentional and create more and help even more people. It's cool how that cycle perpetuates. Oh, it's really nice because... Sometimes when I go to events or I see people and they come up, oh, how you doing? Great to see you. And then they say something like, oh, you, you know, did this and it made, meant so much to me. And I was like, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, you're say, just doing I you. Say, I don't say I don't remember that. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't right. remember that. I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they'll say to you something like, hey, I heard you speak and you said this and I've lived my whole life around it. You're like, it sounds great. <laughs> no recollection. Or you did this for me and I didn't even realize. You know, I'll tell you, I'll give you one, one little story and you'll love this. So this guy calls me, a friend of mine, I haven't seen him for a long time. How you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And we're talking. And he said, you know, my, my father just passed away. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, but I had a beautiful moment with him right before he died. And I said, what? And he said, he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, remember your friend Leonard? And the guy goes, yeah. He says, <laughs> he says I'll never forget the time you took me to the Laker game. We had those floor seats. And it was such a great moment. This is right before the guy dies. Oh, and my gosh. The son, this. I, and the guy tells me this on the phone. And I'm like, I don't even remember giving him the tickets. <laughs> and it's his final memory before he leaves this world. He has to talk about it. That's amazing. And I never even met him. So it's like bizarre. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, Leonard, this show is mostly about uh, the principles of success being universally applicable to everything that people engage in. And I... I love the way that you've been able to kind of see beyond what's happening and see where, where things can go and, and, and create brands and, and intellectual property and help people become more. I think it's really inspiring. And thank you for, for spending time with us out of your busy day today. It's been an honor sure. to meet you and spend time with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in. This has been another episode of Electric People. listening to this and interested in joining our teams dm us on instagram at run the league what are you waiting for run the league shoot us a dm and let's get going